Welcome to the Leadership Conversations podcast. I'm your host, Jono White. I'm the founder and principal consultant of Clarity. We are an Australian-based consultancy that works with leaders around the world, and our passion is to invest in people to become everything they're meant to be in order to fill the world with healthy organizations that people love to work for and customers line up to buy from. The goal of this podcast is to invest in you and your leadership. If you're just joining us for the first time, then feel free to check out consultclarity.org. That's our website, consultclarity.org. We have so many free resources on there. The most popular being our seven questions on leadership series. We've had more than 1,500 leaders from around the world in all different sectors give their in-depth answers on leadership, what books they love, what they found most challenging, uh, the most meaningful stories, how they how they structure their time through the day. That's free, so go and check it out. And we'd love to interview you about your leadership. I believe you have advice from your experience, your context, and your life so far that is important and can help other leaders. It's also a great way to give back. It's free to get involved, and you can do so by going to consultclarity.org forward slash seven dash questions dash interest, or just Google consultclarity.org seven questions interest and fill out the form that pops up. We have a free resource for you on our website. It's called Leadership Survival Guide. It's a 57-page ebook. It has interviews with 10 world-class leaders, and you can go to consultclarity.org. It's right at the top and get that today. Uh, we also have a daily email that we send out to over 15,000 leaders, and that email contains the highlights, our best content from our podcasts, our blog, uh, my book, uh, the books that we're loving that are out there about leadership, it's also the best way to get access to our masterclasses and workshops before anyone else. And there's also exclusive and limited uh, special options just for subscribers. And you can subscribe by going to consultclarity.org forward slash subscribe. Now, my gift to you is to work incredibly hard to provide the best leadership content I can to invest in you and your leadership. So if you're finding our content helpful, if you find this podcast helpful, then your gift to me uh, could be this. If you, if you do find it helpful, then write a review or rate our content and make sure you subscribe or follow. I can't emphasize enough how helpful that is. It really does help us to get the word out there so we can invest in more leaders to become everything they're meant to be. It also means a lot to me personally when people like you and people in our community share our content on social media. So if you do that, then please do look for me, Jono White, to tag me and look to tag Clarity uh, on whatever platform you're on. And our team, including me, I, I'm always looking to see when people have mentioned us so that I can engage with you. And also we look at sharing content. So if you if you write something about something we've done, there's also a good chance we'll share that with our followers. So if you could do that, that is a massive, massive help as we try to invest in as many leaders as we can around the world. Last of all, you can check out my book about how to deal with difficult people even if you hate conflict. It's called Step Up or Step Out. It's available on Amazon. You can just look up Step Up or Step Out John O'White or you can go to store.consultclarity.org forward slash book and check it out there. I 
have coached leader after leader after leader. And in more than 50% of the sessions, this topic comes up. How do I deal with this person? I'm finding it really difficult. And, and I just want to find a way that doesn't blow up to do a really, just to have a difficult conversation, to lead them better. How do I do that? There's a three-step process that I outline in this book that I believe can help you. Okay, let's get into today's episode of the Leadership Conversations podcast. Enjoy. Welcome to another episode of the Leadership Conversations podcast. Today's guest is Spencer Raskoff. Spencer is an entrepreneur, company founder, and investor. Welcome to the podcast, Spencer. Thank you very much. I'm excited to be here. Thanks for having me. Yeah, I'm looking forward to hearing some of your story. Uh, first off the bat, though, can you tell us a little bit about, and I know you wear a few hats. We just said this before clicking record. I was saying, how do I uh, introduce you? Because you, you're a, a man of um, many talents with many, many achievements, but can you tell our listeners about the various things that you do at the moment? Sure, absolutely. So uh, today I'm focused on investing through 75 and Sunny Ventures, which is my venture capital firm, and starting companies through 75 and Sunny Labs, which is my startup studio, which starts new companies. And I'm sure we'll touch on things I've done in the past, but uh, mostly for the last 20 or so years, I've been focused on starting companies as an entrepreneur. Love it. That's so good. Uh, I, I'm so excited to chat with you about that because I know one of the things I love about doing this podcast is I chat with leaders who are uh, entrepreneurs, who are in startup mode, who are leading organizations, really large international organizations, but the principles always overlap. And I think um, with what you with with your experience and what you specialize in, Spencer, I think your insights, I, yeah, it's just one of those areas, whenever I meet someone who does what you do, I'm always like, oh, I know that you'll have really interesting insights, uh, but no pressure. Um, <laughs> hey, let's, um, <laughs> let's chat about your story. I, I would love to ask, let's start with your childhood. If you think back to growing up, what are some of the moments from that season of your life, or even themes that really shaped you into the person and leader you are today? Uh, well, I grew up in an entrepreneurial family. My grandfather on my mother's side started a uh, men's clothing company and um, was was very involved in it when I was young. And my grandparents and great-grandparents on my father's side had a couple different businesses um, and, and had lots of entrepreneurship. But my dad's experience as an entrepreneur impacted me the most. And uh, to briefly tell his story, he started as an accountant and worked at a very white shoe, you know, proper established accounting firm in the late 60s and early 70s in New York. But through happenstance in the men's room one day, he met a British fellow who had flown from London to New York to try to convince my dad's accounting firm to take on his client. And um, the, my dad's accounting firm had refused. And so my dad said, you know, tell me more about the situation. And he said, well, I'm the manager of the Rolling Stones. I'm Prince Rupert Lowenstein. And I've come here to try <laughs> to get your accounting firm to be the Rolling Stones auditor for the 1972 European tour. <laughs> and they threw me out because they said, you know, my client is a bunch of a bunch of hoodlums that throw TVs out windows and, you know, do drugs and so on and so forth. And my dad said, well, I'm in. And so he took a leave of absence from the partnership at his firm to be the tour account for the 1972 European tour. 
And that kicked off what became a 40 something year career as a business manager and tour producer for rock groups for U2, the Rolling Stones, David Bowie, the police, Pink Floyd, Paul Simon, and many, many others. And so I grew up watching him as a, an entrepreneur in the music industry, kind of a, a reformed accountant turned entrepreneur and watched him pivot his business many times through the years as the company, as the industry moved from records to cassettes and then uh, cassettes to CDs and then CDs to streaming and as concerts became a bigger part of the business and as intellectual property became a bigger part of the business, et cetera. And, you know, we could talk for a couple hours about the various entrepreneurial pivots that, that he followed as, as the music industry evolved. But to make a long story short, I watched that as a, as a impressionable kid and thought to myself, that seems cool. And that seems like a more interesting career than uh, sticking on Wall Street or, um, or accounting. And so that was very formative for me and, and helped guide my decision to pursue a career in entrepreneurship. Yeah, absolutely. What a, um, that's, that's a really unique uh, move to go from accountant to, uh, I can, I can see in the story how it happened, but if you just heard those two, uh, those two roles, they sound so different, I guess, when, when you first hear about an accountant who then becomes a tour manager. very much like a startup in a lot of ways. And I've now started nine companies. And so I, I, I see how a tour was like one. I mean, I, I remember as a kid, my dad would say, okay, you know, you two has decided to tour for the next two years. Uh, so I'm getting the, the gang together. That means we need to raise a couple hundred million dollars in financing. That's like venture capital investing in startups. We need to hire the tour director, the choreographer, the choreographer, the lighting director, the stage manager. It's a startup that ends up with a couple hundred employees and raises a couple hundred million dollars and over a, a two to four year period generates hopefully a couple hundred million dollars in revenue and profit. Um, but it's, it's basically a startup each go around and, um, you know, with, with all the, all the challenges and triumphs and tribulations of, of normal startup life from mm. challenges of money to finding product market fit to, to uh, understanding your personas as, as cu uh, customer personas to figure out the positioning and the competitive positioning against other substitute products that are on tour at the same time um, to finding channel partners and uh, negotiating biz dev relationships. I mean, it's, it's a startup. And again, I, yeah. you know, I watched that as a kid. I didn't realize at the time it, all of that, but now I do. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, no, that makes perfect sense when you explain it like that. Do you have? Are there any? Are there any stories of your dad? Uh, watch where you watched through young eyes, you know, and you saw him deal with a crisis, or you watched him get something over the line last minute, or um, make make a tough decision. A anything that really stands out for you as a, uh, you know, a moment where he did something as a leader, as an entrepreneur that that has sort of shaped some of the way you lead and the way you um, invest in startups? Yeah, I, I would say uh, the team building aspect of startup life and of dealing with competing personalities on the talent side, again, are pretty similar. So um, he, 
and others helped bring, uh, let's, let's just say that Simon and Garfunkel hadn't worked very much together for a long time until the, I think it was 1989 when they agreed to tour together again and do a residency at the Paramount Theater at the Madison Square Garden for about 30 days in a row. And Mick and Keith hadn't really worked together at the Rolling Stones for most of the 80s until 1989 when they agreed to tour together. And um, you two also had some ups and downs. And so um, I think getting people to play nice together was one of his superpowers. And I think that's one of the things that I've excelled at as well as I have helped bring together leadership teams and management teams, uh, especially managing companies through crisis, which I've done on a couple of occasions mm. that is a, an important skill for any leader. <laughs> yeah, that's, um, so what lessons did you learn? What did you see your dad do? Because that is a superpower and a half. I can imagine the, that's tense. <laughs> you know, you're not just talking about getting back in a room once for some of those you're saying, yeah, like re like resetting some expectations to actually be able to work together in close, close proximity for for a while, how did he? How did he do that? Yeah, well, so I mean, I I, I have to admit I wasn't in the room uh, for a lot of those conversations, so I'm not a hundred percent sure. But I, I I know what's worked for me, and I think what worked for him was helping illuminate for people the greater mission of what the organization is trying to accomplish. So you know, this isn't about personality A or personality B, this is about building a great product that can impact hundreds of millions of people's happiness and their lives. That we're building something bigger than any one of us. It can contribute to society, it can contribute to entertaining, it can contribute to teaching and spreading goodwill and love uh, through the world in, in the case of music and live entertainment. Um, you know, it's, it's about trying to level people up away from the day-to-day -day and away from the, the issues that they face and personality conflicts that they may have mm. and reminding them of, of the greater good that they're trying to create together. Yeah, one thing that I've found difficult with that and, and chatting with leaders as well is how do you, you know, when people are on the tools in a real, you know, sometimes the day-to-day -day work, well, well, not sometimes, there's always the, just the daily grind in, in many different roles and in many different companies, how, uh, I guess, what advice would you give about how to influence someone whose daily grind might be a, a grind, but actually to bring into their world, the big picture without, you know, like being that, being that, uh, getting the eye roll, you know, where it's like, oh man, just leave me alone. I've got, I've got, I've got 24 hours of work to do in the next nine hours. How do you, how do you do that? Do you know what I mean? Yeah, I, I definitely know what you mean. Um, and I, I, I will add, it's much harder. Everything we're talking about is harder today than it used to be. It's much harder in a remote world to drive employee engagement, to build a mission-driven organization, to get people to care about something bigger than themselves. Um, you know, we're all just little squares on Zoom screens now. And it's very hard to build connection between an employee and the, with the greater mission. Um, you know, I think what I found uh, as, as the best way to achieve that is 
as boring as it might sound, it's repetitive communication. <laughs> so saying the same <laughs> thing over and over again um, yeah. in different settings. And actually, I think politicians do this very, very well, or talented <laughs> politicians. Yeah. Where, you know, they'll, they'll, they'll have a, a, a thing they're trying to get across. Maybe it's this, you know, this uh, judicial nominee that I've, I've put forth is really qualified and, and ought to be confirmed or this piece of legislation ought to be passed or, uh, you know, whatever. So it's something that they're trying to accomplish. And then again, talented politicians will distill that into a couple of reasons why the person hearing the information, whether it's the electorate or um, maybe another elected group of elected officials, you know, how do I craft and position it for them? And then I just say it over and over again in different settings through different channels. So, Maybe I put it out through social media. I put it out through my proxies, uh, meaning you know other people on my staff or team that I help catalyze to, to, to carry my water and spread the message. Uh, I then try to find uh, other other allies, perhaps folks in the media uh, or, or, or other ways to amplify the message. That's what a great executive does too. So at Zillow, for example, the company I was CEO of for a decade, mm. uh, if I was trying to get something across like, uh, we need to tighten our belt on expense management, for example, which is something that's, that every company is talking about right now, given the state of the world and the challenges that most companies face. Uh, how, do you, how does an executive get the word out and get people behind something like that? Well, it's trying to figure out how to recast for the listener why they should care about that. So in that case, it might be you know the way that we can achieve our mission of whatever the mission of the company is of you know, whatever, allowing people to achieve some higher goal is to ensure that we're financially stable. And one way to do that is to tighten the belt. Um, uh, th- once you figure out how to distill the message so that it's appealing or as appealing as possible to the recipient, then get the word out through all these different channels. For an executive, it might mean using Slack or Microsoft Teams or some other communication channel. It might mean, uh, you know, in the written form, it might mean recording a video internally for employees. It might mean doing an all hands meeting. It definitely will mean finding proxies within the organization, either at the leadership level or hyper connectors at the more junior level who you gain buy-in on that tactic that on that strategy that you're trying to, um, trying to spread and you help arm them to spread the word. Um, Mm. and, and then you might even choose depending upon what message you're trying to convey, you might even choose to externally amplify it as well because remember your constituents your stakeholders your employees are watching what you say publicly on podcasts and uh in the media and in public social media as well so anyway it's figuring out the messages and then repeatedly saying it over and over again through different channels yeah i love uh i love that idea because um another way that i've heard it um, articulated is Patrick Lencioni, who I, I love his leadership work around organizational health, the five dysfunctions of a team. And he talks about being the chief reminding officer, like that every every leader needs to be the chief reminding officer. Um, but he also talks about cascading communication. And, um, but I love how simple that is because it's so easy to be like, well, how do you, how do you, you get the buy-in? Well, here's a really complex abstract, abstract idea. It's like, no, we'll really articulate <laughs> exactly what the message is and then repeat it over and over again. And, and yeah, cascade it through basically every channel you can. Um, 
and and I think that's I, I think that's underrated in leadership. So for you, Spencer, tell us about your, a bit of your pathway. <laughs> and I know um, we, uh, you know, we're not going to get the whole, uh, the whole journey, but your pathway to end up where you are now, how has that, like, what, what has that journey been like from, like we said, when you were sort of younger to, to ending up doing what you're doing now? Can you give us a bit of a, a snapshot of, of how you ended up where you are? Absolutely. Yeah, so I started my career in investment banking at Goldman Sachs um, in mergers and acquisitions group in New York. And I learned a lot at a very young age. I was only there for two years. It was an intense experience that I wouldn't trade for anything, but sort of like being in the military, I, I would imagine having never been in the military, uh, an intense experience that you're grateful that you had, but you're also grateful that it's in your past. And that's sort of how I think about my time served in investment banking. I then moved to San Francisco in 1999 to work at a private equity firm called TPG, which does leveraged buyouts and makes investments in companies. And I enjoyed that, but I wanted to be closer to the action, closer to the product, closer to the operations of the business. I wasn't, I, I, I'm more of a income statement person than a balance sheet person, I guess you would say, meaning that the structuring of investments that is what drives private equity returns more often than not, isn't nearly as interesting to me as business strategy, business operations, team building, culture yeah. building, and just building stuff. And so uh, I, I left TPG and um, TPG had helped incubate a startup called Hotwire, which I left to help run. And we started Hotwire in 1999, it was an online travel company, which went through ups and downs. And if you want, we can talk about those, but to, to accelerate the story in the interest of time, we sold the company four years later in 2003 for about $700 million to Expedia. And I moved up to Seattle to work at Expedia, uh, where I ran the hotel business for about a year. And I grew tiresome of working at a big company and, and had the startup bug again. And so I left Expedia with a couple other folks to help start Zillow in 2006. And then I was CEO of Zillow in 2011 when I took it public and we did 16 acquisitions and uh, became a big company, a couple thousand employees, 10 billion plus market cap. And then I retired from that role about three years ago when I started 75 and Sunny and started investing and starting new companies like Picasso and Recon Food and, and other startups that <laughs> hopefully we'll have time to talk about. Yeah, I... So that's, that's my path from investing back into You've you've uh, you must have articulated that before because that was very concise. Um, I, I love when you say a sentence like we had our ups and downs, and you know there's like intense days, weeks, or months of stories you could tell in in a sentence. Yeah, it, 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 I, it, I, listeners will have to take my word for it, but I, I've lost a lot of hair. Uh, I, I, don't look, <laughs> uh, I, I look very different than I did twenty years ago. Well. Um, I know that we're not going to be able to um, touch on everything today, and I have about twenty questions in my mind, so I got to I got to sort of pick one because I, uh, I yeah, I just think there's so many things I could ask about. Let, let's start with the first, um, like you said, you know, the the ups and downs of the first organization that you went on to sell um, to Expedia. That was was that so? Just just so I understand, that was your 
was that really the first startup that you scaled? Yes. Yeah. It, it, it was. Yeah, it was my first, my first startup. So for listeners who've never done that before or been part of that, what were your what were the biggest lessons you learned? And maybe if you want to throw in a story here or there, but the the things that were big wins or the things that were Oh my goodness. Okay. I, I, I now will never forget that lesson from that sort of hyper, hyper growth first experience for you. Sure. Um, well, the biggest challenge we encountered was clearly nine 11, uh, September 11th, 2001. The company was about two years old. We had gotten up to about 200 employees. Things were going very, very well. And then nine 11 happened and 9-11 was a tragedy for the country, for the world, but it was also quite tragic for our little online travel startup. And uh, for several reasons. Number one, I had a, a, a near miss with 9-11 because on September 9th, I had given a speech at the Millennium Hilton in uh, on Wall Street or in, in downtown New York. And uh, the Millennium Hilton was destroyed by one of the towers uh, two days later. And on September 10th, I flew on the flight from Newark back to SFO, which was the same exact flight number and the same exact plane just 24 hours later. Oh my goodness. That, uh, that, that crashed on 9-11. So, you know, I was, I was spared by just one day the mm. tragedy of 9-11 personally. And then Hotwire had sold tickets to the hijackers that they traveled on in September 10th, the tickets from Bangor, Maine to Boston, Logan, that, uh. Boston sell in position. And so I didn't, we didn't let the company know that only a handful of executives knew that after the FBI told us that, uh, on, by the afternoon of September 11th. And I only re relatively recently started sharing that story publicly. Uh, but I, I mentioned it just to give you, give you a sense of just how, um, you know, the, the, the grief and the sense of guilt and connectivity that we at Hotwire felt to the tragic 9-11. From a business standpoint, we had tens of thousands of customers stranded around the country. We had hundreds of thousands of customers demanding refunds for travel that was upcoming that they no longer wanted to complete. And we had a credit card processor that was ready to cut us off because they thought we were a credit risk, which we were. Um, and it was, it was pretty gnarly. Um, to make a long story short, we laid off about a quarter of the company, we went from about 200 employees to 150 employees. We cut everything we could. We threw everything that wasn't mission critical overboard. And we managed to save the company. Um, and it required a lot of intense focus. It required a lot of what we were talking about just a couple minutes ago about communicating the mission to employees and trying to drive employee engagement and convince people of why they should be there and why they should show up to work every day there. Uh, but by two years later, we managed to sell the company for a significant sum and, and really pulled, pulled a bit of a rabbit out of the hat. You know, if you'd asked me on September 12th whether I thought the company was going to survive, I would have said probably not. Wow. I certainly didn't expect that by two years later we would we'd have an exit. And actually, it's it's quite a bit like like COVID, right? I mean, you yeah. have all the companies in spring of, I guess it was 2020, they, so many of them thought they were going to perish and many did obviously, but so many of them also bounced back in a huge way and were beneficiaries of that crisis. And, and interestingly, Hotwire was, was actually beneficiary in, you know, of, of the, 
of the travel recession following 9-11. I wouldn't say a beneficiary of the tragedy. Nobody, nobody can claim that. But, um, but the fact is that the airlines and hotel companies needed online distribution more than ever coming because of the travel recession after 9-11. And so they embraced online distributors like Hotwire more than they otherwise would have. And likewise, we started Zillow in 2006 and two years later in 2008, there was another global calamity, the global financial crisis, which online real estate, my industry again, was right at the epicenter of. So there's something, by the way, about two years after I started companies, <laughs> they tend to tend to ignite global meltdowns for some reason. Um, <laughs> but, um, but, but, but the Zillow 2008 story is very, very similar to the Hotwire 2001 story. We, we did layoffs, we tightened the belt, managed through the crisis and by a couple of years later we had we had achieved greater results than any of us expected and um uh, you know and and now a lot of my companies are managing through covid and mm. um, learned, applying some of those same lessons that i learned from those two prior crises you know i'm interested to to ask now that you've been through and and led through multiple um crises as you reflect, was there anything that you could have done about either of those? If we think that um, uh, with September 11, and if we think about the global financial crisis, was there anything in hindsight you could have done to prevent the impact it had on the company? Or do you think things like that happen and they're unforeseen? There wasn't really anything you could you could have done. I, I guess I'm just interested because I think sometimes just to give some context, I think we live in a utopia where we're like, I never want to have to um, let any people, you know, great leaders don't have to do layoffs. So I, I, I don't know if people say that, but I feel like sometimes we believe that. And so I'm just interested in your reflection in hindsight on that. Well, you know, it's very different. Managing through crisis is very different if it's a crisis of the company's own making because of, of errors that leadership made or managing through something exogenous that, that occurred through no fault of your own. And fortunately, both the Hotwire and Zillow experiences and now managing Picasso and Recon Food and my other startups through the COVID crisis, these were all exogenous crises, not of my own making. So uh, employees are much more understanding of drastic <laughs> actions that need to be taken yeah. if it's not the stupid management's fault that, <laughs> you know, in the first place. Um, so I think, you know, that's, that's one important, important lesson. Another important lesson is to cut deep and ideally cut once. The worst thing that one can possibly do is to have three or four rounds of layoffs or of belt tightenings because it just, that, steady drumbeat of bad news really kills morale. Um, it, it just, it crushes the company. And so I always, I always encourage companies that encounter challenge, whether it's challenges of their own making or challenges from something external, uh, to try to control their own destiny, which means cutting as much as you think is necessary in order to get to break even. Um, yeah, I've got a company right now, for example, that, is is managing through COVID and it's doing well, but in the current environment, when we sit here in you know, May of 2022, I'm not quite sure when this will post, but 
in May of 2022, it is a very, very challenging capital markets environment. And so I've told most companies that I'm involved in to assume they will not be able to raise a venture capital round for the foreseeable future because mm. it's, it's really, the weather is really bad out there. And given that, companies need to adjust their operating plan to, you know, to adapt to that reality. And so I had a company, for example, presents an operating plan to me that should, and, uh, and to the board that um, assumed some improvements in some underlying metrics that said like, oh, you know, we have enough cash for the next three years, as long as this goes up and this goes up. And I was like, no, 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 like, I want to know how much cash we have if we're not able to improve a lot of the underlying metrics. And that's a totally different, different question and, and answer. So anyway, yeah. I, I think that to summarize, when you're managing through crisis, you, you, you have to try to control your own destiny. You got to cut deep enough. And you have to try to do it once, maybe one and done, ideally. Mm. And you have to be as transparent as possible with your employees and other stakeholders. And that can be hard. That one of the hardest things about managing through COVID was that it was a moving target. That you just, you know, people didn't know, is this going to last, what, three months? You know, six months, 12 months, five years? Like nobody, still nobody knows. Um, and so it's very hard to know how to adjust the business if there's that much uncertainty in the operating environment out there. Yeah, no, absolutely. Um, it's that, that makes so much sense. I, I love what you said about cutting once because that's, that's a little bit counterintuitive because there'd be, it'd be very temp tempting to go, you know what, let's try to minimize the cut the first time and then hope for the best. But if you set yourself up, um, like you said, to not really be able to control your own destiny and then you're having to do multiple cuts, that is a hundred percent a culture killer. And as you were sharing that, I was thinking of examples of people I know who've been in situations like that, where they go, well, I made it through the last cut, but I probably won't make it through the next one. And so they're still there, but they're, they're, they're counting their days. It, it's just such a shocking. Yeah. Whereas though at least once and done, like one and done is so that I'd never thought of it that way, Spencer. Thank you so much for sharing that. Um, Hey, I, a question popped into my head about um, Hotwire, and um, uh, I just and I try to ask the questions that I imagine listeners might think of. So that's why I thought oh, I better I better ask it. When everything happened with September 11, I'm just interested to know because people uh, were you know some of the people involved bought um, tickets through Hotwire. Did you have as well as the challenge of the travel? W did you have a lot of heat on you from say the authorities and did, was that affecting how you how you had to run the business and manage that in the following days too yes um mostly just i mean there wasn't any culpability but there was gloom i'd say you know we, we had the fbi i mean they wanted to know what we knew about these customers and we're like all we know is we bought these tickets so these are their credit card numbers and this was sure the credit card like that was the so, so there wasn't, it wasn't like an ongoing investigation of any kind. It was more of a, you know, it was a, it was a short, a short interaction, but over the following couple of weeks, as more information came out about the hijackers yeah. and, and their enablers, it, it just, I don't know, it, and again, we, we didn't let the company know. We only, only a couple of the most senior folks at the, in the executive team knew and we decided not to tell yeah. the company. Um, 
but uh, but it definitely added to the gloom and it added to the um, the stress of the moment. Yeah, how did that affect you personally? I, like, I can't even imagine the the near miss you experienced the on September 12th looking and going, I don't think we're going to make it. And then having that information where, like you said, you weren't culpable, but I can only imagine the weight of that sitting on you as the, as a leader in that situation. And you're not able to tell anyone, which is, I, I can, I completely agree. I can only imagine um, that being mis misunderstood and misconstrued. And it's like, I see why you didn't, but then also you're not able to really share that with a lot of people. So it must've just sat on you. Yeah. Yeah, you're right. Um, you know, the, the fact is that we were so embroiled in the day-to-day -day crisis of, of dealing with customers and dealing with cash flow and liquidity that I don't think we really had time to adequately process <laughs> as a country or even our connection to the tragedy. It was really, let's, let's make sure that this startup survives. And, and sure. That's what we prior, that's what yeah, no, that that makes sense. I, that must have been an, uh, super intense. Um, and and I want to ask you about the current organize, you know, the current um, startups you have in a moment, and about what's happening there. But uh, last question about that with with Hotwire, how long was that intensity for you saving the company? Like, are we talking um, days, weeks, months? When did you feel like you were finally able to sigh and breathe and go, "We're going to make it"? Like, what was the what was the time frame that you were in save the company mode? It's yeah. a good question. It was probably a year. Um, oh yeah, man. It was probably a year after 9-11 that we finally felt like the turbulence, you know, to use a travel metaphor, uh, the, the turbulence <laughs> had passed and we maybe take off our seatbelts and walk around the cabin. That is just, uh, man, I can't even imagine a year in that, in that type of zone that's full on. Um, so let's, uh, let's come to the current day now and tell us about the different startups. I, I, I love that, um, you know, where, where you've been and with, uh, with Zillow and, and three years ago, but there must be, uh, some really exciting things happening, uh, amongst the different ventures that 75 and sunny is part of. So yeah, give us a bit of an overview of the, of what's happening at the moment and, and what you're excited about. Sure. Um, so I've started five companies in the last two and a half years. <laughs> so I've been busy. I've made, I've made a lot of use of COVID. Uh, the first company that I started is a company called dot LA. It's D O T period LA and dot LA is a media company. It's a news website that covers the Los Angeles tech ecosystem. I live in LA and there's a lot happening in the Los Angeles tech scene, but there's very little journalism covering it. And I feel that journalism can play an important role in helping an ecosystem achieve its full potential. And so I set out to help achieve, help Los Angeles achieve its full potential in the tech community by having a media site, a media company that puts on events and podcasts and news coverage of the LA startup scene. And that company has raised about 6 million in venture capital from the LA tech community, has about 15 employees, and it's by far the most well-read news service covering LA tech. Then um, my, uh, my next company is coming called Picasso, P-A-C-A-S-O. And Picasso lets you buy a portion of a second home. I started this with a number of folks uh, that were also at Zillow with me. 
and it lets you buy an eighth or two eighths or three eighths of a second home, trying to democratize access to second home ownership. It's an idea that has perfect timing because in this new remote hybrid world, most people are untethered from their office headquarters. And so many people are seeking second home ownership, but it's very expensive to own a second home. And Picasso lets you do it by just owning an eighth or two eighths or three eighths of it, which radically improves affordability. Uh, we've raised a couple hundred million of venture capital. Picasso was the fastest company ever to achieve unicorn status or a billion dollar valuation. And we're in 35 markets in four countries, unfortunately not in Australia yet, but we're in most of the United States and in Spain and in the UK and in Mexico. Wow. So, so those were the first two. And then, you know, the, the, the one with the most interesting founding story is probably recon food, which I, for which I am the co-founder along with my 17 year old daughter, who's my CEO and recon food is, is a social app that lets you reconnect recon with people over a shared love of food. So it's a social media site just focused on food, think sort of Instagram, but for food only. Mm. And the idea here is that food's a category that people are passionate about and categories that people are passionate about deserve their own social network. Just like Strava is a social network for running and LinkedIn is a social network for your job and all trails is a social network for hiking, etc. There are these emerging vertical social networks. And um, so Recon connects to your camera roll it uses computer vision to pull out every photo you've ever taken in your phone of food and it plots it on a map and it geocodes it to the nearest restaurant or other food location. And so it lets you relive your food memories at restaurants and then post home cooking and share recipes and get inspiration from others all around the subject of food. Um, and then I have two others, Path, Travel and Q. I'm happy to talk about also, but let me, let me pause since I've been talking for a little while <laughs> about all of these startups that, that, I'm, that I'm working on. No, no, I, I'm, uh, I, I know that not everyone who listens will be uh, necessarily entrepreneurial, but whether people are or not, I think what you're doing is fascinating. So it's, uh, it's, it's just like, not only am I taking on board the different ideas, but just the number that you've started in the past couple of years. So please, please continue. Yeah. Unpack the, the others as well. It's great. Uh, cool. So the next one is called Q, Q U E U E. And Q is a, uh, streaming discovery service. So think like a social layer on top of a TV guide. And the issue here is that streaming content, TV shows and movies have become so fragmented across Netflix and HBO Max and Hulu and Disney Plus and you name it. And I don't know how many other services there are, you know, unique to, to Australia and other parts of the world, mm. but uh, it's hard to figure out what to watch. It's like there's more <laughs> content than ever before, but most people spend, uh, this is a true data point. Most people spend 15 minutes trying to decide what to watch and most people give up and they just pull out their phone and they use TikTok or Instagram. And that's crazy. And so Q lets you keep track of what you intend to watch. You know, when, when you hear about a new show that your friends mentioned, what do you currently do? Most people do nothing. Some people email themselves. Some people put it in the notes app of their phone. Well, Q lets you in a structured way, keep track of your Q 
and it lets you see what your friends are watching in order to discover new streaming content. Um, we've raised a couple million in venture capital for this. Mm. I'm the chair and founder, uh, or co-founder. Uh, I've got a great team from Snapchat that is, is running it, the CEO and chief product officer, both from Snap. And uh, it's a terrific app. You should check it out. And then um, the very last one is called Path Travel. That's also a mobile app. It's a yep. social service that helps you discover restaurants and hotels and activities through social media. So if you're trying to figure out where to, where to stay or where to eat, reading static reviews on TripAdvisor or Yelp or some other service mm. is kind of, it, it doesn't bring to life the destination. Mm. So Path, Path lets you see TikTok type content on a map and it lets you get a sense of the vibe of the location before deciding where to travel to. And so it's a, you know, it's a think of if TripAdvisor were started today in 2022 instead of in 1995. Yeah. That's, that's wow. So good. I, what I love about the different ideas is um, one of the, one of the biggest challenges leaders talk about, no matter what scale or size their, their business is, is the challenge of stepping into customers' shoes and really understanding people's pain points and what they actually need. And the thing I love about your um, the, the different uh, startups that you're scaling at the moment, Spencer, is you know every one of them I listen to and I'm like, oh, yeah, like with <laughs> buying a portion of a second home, I'm like, oh, man, you have to come to Australia. Australians are obsessed. I know there's the American dream, but Australians are obsessed with... Um, uh, with being able to buy property. And it's it's actually a big part of our federal election. Once again, right now, May 2022, we've got a federal election this month. And being able to afford a home is one of the biggest, um, one of the biggest points of, of, you know, that everyone's sort of trying to work out which party can help facilitate that. So I just, yeah, but also Q, you know, you reminded me in terms of pain points. And I think this is, for, for those listening, this is like um, one takeaway just from hearing you unpack the types of businesses you're doing. But you made me think of, so I'm a massive soccer fan. I love, I, I follow European soccer primarily. So I'm a Manchester United fan. Uh, I have a four-week-old and I bought little Roman a Manchester United little uh, soccer outfit um, to grow into. So I'm, I'm a bit obsessed. And so I've been trying to follow European soccer from Australia. And literally four different streaming services have purchased four different, um, uh, the four different main sort of uh, uh, finals that I like to watch. So one has the Premier League, one has the FA Cup, which is still in England, but a different service shows the, the FA Cup. One has the UEFA Champions League. And it's so frustrating. In fact, um, just like the, why I love just uh, focusing on a queue. For me, I didn't even know why I couldn't see the FA Cup. I'm sitting here in Australia. I'm like, so where is the FA Cup? Like, and I'm a, I'm a big fan. And yeah, I just wasn't aware of where it was. I had to go and like Google and, and really struggle to find it because it kept popping up with like other information to actually work out that, uh, you know, Paramount Plus has bought the rights to the FA Cup. So then I'm like, oh, well, now I need to get a Paramount Plus subscription so I can actually watch the FA Cup. And so I, I just loved that as you shared the business model for Q, that story popped into my head and I just was shaking my head going, oh man, that was so frustrating. If I if I could have known, and that's sport, but if I could have known 
um, it, you know, where some of those things were in, in one, what I, I think that's a massive answer to, to a, a need right now in 2022 that I'm sure listeners are nodding along to as well. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah, I, it, it is, it, it is a huge issue. Uh, and by the way, I know a lot about the Australian real estate market and I, I've been there many times when I was with Zillow because Zillow's biggest shareholder is an Australian investment company. Ah, uh, about 10% yeah. of Zillow is owned by this, this Australian uh, hedge fund. And so I've studied REA and domain yep. and you know, entire property industry in Australia very well. And yes, you are all real estate crazy, <laughs> um, <laughs> even more so than, than Americans. So uh, I'm sure Picasso will be there before long. And, um, you know, I, I think it, it, will, it will probably find great receptivity. Definitely. I like I'm up in Queensland in Australia and in, in Brisbane and through COVID Melbourne had the most severe lockdowns in Australia. And so what was happening is everyone, um, the housing market, like other parts of the world, but here it's been absolutely going crazy. And, um, a lot of my friends were trying to buy houses and they kept getting, um, outbidded by people who were buying, um, unseen from, from Melbourne who were stuck in their houses were locked down with COVID, like because of COVID and we're like, that's it. This is my, this is my time to move from Melbourne up to sunny Queensland. And, uh, and I just thought it was hilarious. All these, like not even investors, these are people who are, who are buying to move up and they were just buying unseen up in Queensland way over market value. And, and, um, that was just anecdotally what I heard. So yeah, I, I, a hundred percent think, um, once you can, once you can bring Picasso to the Australian market, yeah, it's, it's going to fly. Um, well, I'm just aware of the time spent, so we could, I could ask you about 150 more questions. In fact, I'd love to invite you back for a, a part two at some point because I, I have, I do have so many more questions about your journey, but also about leadership um, that that I'd love to ask you. So the the invitation's there to to come back at some point. Thank you. That'd be my pleasure. Let's do it. Uh, for today, just to to wrap up there'll be people listening who would love to find out more about you, but also about the different um, companies that you've mentioned. What's the best place or what are the best places to follow you online and find out about the different startups? Yeah, so I'm a pretty easy person to find online. Uh, you can go to spencerraskoff.com or 75andsunny.vc and the, you can find all my social handles there and on 75andsunny.vc you'll find all my portfolio companies and you know the other companies that i mentioned are dot period la that's dot la picasso p-a-c-a-s-o.com recon food is in the iphone app store path travel is on the iphone app store and q is in the iphone app store brilliant i think a lot of people are going to be checking them out uh some some wonderful ideas and, and business models. Uh, you're, you're a pretty inspiring guy. I think anyone with an entrepreneurial vein in their body is going to be uh, leaving this episode with a bit more uh, courage to, to push into some of their ideas because I, I just love your approach. Um, well, I, yeah, I'm sad to wrap it up today because I've just, you can probably tell I've just been loving this so much. But for our listeners, thank you so much for uh, for tuning in. This has been gold. I know you would have picked up so much from this. Um, don't forget, I have the John O'White Leadership Podcast and the Leadership Question of the Day podcast as well for listeners if you want to continue to invest in your leadership. But I want to finish today by saying a massive thank you to you, Spencer, for being so generous with your time, uh, for sharing 
just uh, so vulnerably about your story and, and the ups and downs and the challenges, I, I honestly have found it very inspiring chatting with you. So thank you so much for coming on the podcast. Thank you for having me. Well, I hope you enjoyed that episode of the Leadership Conversations podcast as much as I did. If you're joining us for the first time, don't forget to check out consultclarity.org. That's our website, consultclarity.org. We have so many free resources on there, including our seven questions on leadership series. We've had more than 1,500 leaders from all over the world in all different roles, in different industries, answer these seven questions on leadership and leaders give these in-depth answers around how they spend their time, uh, a book that's been significant for them. It's just a gold mine. It's completely free to access. So go to consultclarity.org and look for that. We'd also love to interview you about your leadership. I believe your experience, your life, your context means that you have advice on leadership that other leaders can learn from. Yes, you, if you're going, not me. Well, no, I really believe you would have something to add. So if you're looking for a way to give back, it's completely free to get involved. And we would love to interview you through the seven questions on leadership. You just go to consultclarity.org forward slash seven dash questions dash interest or Google consultclarity.org seven questions interest and fill out the form and get involved. We have a free resource on our website called the Leadership Survival Guide. It's a 57-page ebook, 10 world-class leaders giving their thoughts on leadership, and that's completely free. It's available on our homepage, consultclarity.org, right at the top. So make sure you go and get that and download it today. And we have a free daily email that you can subscribe to. We send this out to over 15,000 leaders from around the world. And uh, it contains the highlights of content from our podcasts, our blogs, um, our books, books we're reading. It's got the best content and it gives you exclusive, limited, early access to our masterclasses, workshops, new products, special offers. It's all for our subscribers. You can go to consultclarity.org forward slash subscribe and join 15,000 other leaders And you know, my gift to you is to work really hard, particularly through the Leadership Conversations podcast. I have been blown away by the quality of the leaders and I'm learning as much as anyone in doing these interviews. So I'm having a great time. And my gift to you is to keep lining up the best leaders I can to invest in your leadership. Your gift to me, if you're finding this helpful, there is something that you could do that would help us out massively. And that is to write a review and to leave a rating for our podcast or wherever you're watching or listening to this, I can't tell you how much that helps us out. Also subscribe or follow. It really does make a difference in helping us to help more leaders become everything they're meant to be. Another thing that means a lot to me personally is when I see our community share our content. So if you do share this or any other piece of content on social media, then thank you and and please do that. And look for me, John White or clarity and tag us in your post. Our team is always looking for posts to engage with from our community. And there's also a chance that we'll share your content uh, to go beyond and share it with our followers. Last of all, you can check out my book. It's called Step Up or Step Out, How to Deal with Difficult People Even if You Hate Conflict. 
I wrote this book because 50% of the coaching sessions I have with leaders, this topic comes up again and again and again. And it's this idea of how do I have this difficult conversation? How do I lead this person better when I'm finding them difficult? Or in some cases you look and you say, I think I might be leading a difficult person. They're just quite difficult to lead or I'm finding them quite difficult to lead. So there's a three-step process that I unpack in step up or step out. And the amazing thing, and I've literally done this myself and I've heard it anecdotally from other leaders as I've coached them, is that if you follow this process, you will see that person step up and change their behavior or make a decision, which is to step out some of the time. Uh, 95% of the time, people will step up or step out in just four weeks. And I stand by that. It's uh, You have to read the book to understand, but uh, I really do believe in it and I've experienced it firsthand. It works. So you can go to Amazon, look up Step Up or Step Out John O. White or store.consultclarity.org forward slash book. Well, thank you so much for listening. We're going to be back with a new episode next time of the Leadership Conversations podcast. And I hope today has helped you to take another step towards becoming the leader you're meant to be. See you next time.